If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to the second chapter of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And this morning, we want to consider together the place of incarnation. Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And then will you turn with me to 1 Timothy, chapter 1. Just one verse from 1 Timothy, chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1, very well-known verse, verse 15. First Timothy 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, or of whom I am the chief. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come into your holy presence this morning, singing these hymns of praise, reminding ourselves of the coming into the world of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wondrous mystery to behold. Now we desire that you would, with the help of your Holy Spirit, guide us and instruct us in the truth that this Advent season we might lift our eyes and hearts and minds to the Lord Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners, to save us, because we are sinners. And we thank you that he came into this world for us. So now we pray as we listen to your word that you would be pleased by your Holy Spirit to direct us and guide us, that we might respond in faith and believe the truth. These things we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. doesn't matter where you turn uh, in your newspaper or if you listen to the news, you discover that there's no question that our world at this very moment is in turmoil. It's almost as if it has come to a waterfall or the edge of a cliff, a precipice. And everywhere you look or everywhere you turn, you discover that the hearts of men and women, the lives of people, are greatly affected by a variety of things. They're affected by the economy, they're affected by the politics, they're affected by military action, 
they are affected ultimately by the turmoil of their own hearts and their own lives. This is Advent, this is Christmas, and generally when we as believers talk about Christmas, we, we uplift our hearts and lift up our minds in joy in a response to the good news that Jesus came into the world to save us. But for the vast majority of the world, they do not know this good news, and the news they have is just filled with trouble. So a tornado can come through virtually overnight, decimate towns and take the lives of people, and people have no answer. But we have answers, because we have the Bible, because we have God's Word. And in this passage before us, which is just a simple, straightforward account, narrative of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, we would be remiss or negligent if we didn't stop and spend some time in considering the import of these verses that we find in verses 1 through 7. Sometimes we look for the spectacular, don't we, in the Bible? Because that's something that seems stupendous, maybe mysterious, transcendent. I can hold on to that. That encourages me. But when it is something that is just mundane, plain, unadorned, like a manger scene, we are usually unaffected or pass by it because it doesn't really have significance or meaning for us. Yet perhaps this morning, this passage, more than any other passage, is a passage of singular importance for every Christian, in fact, for every single person in the world. So as we come to this passage, this is just a straightforward narrative that Luke as an excellent historian, lays out and unfolds for us regarding Jesus' birth. One of the things you discover in this passage is that it is filled with historical information. Not just biblical information, but historical information. If you're looking for some deep theology to draw out, perhaps from verses 1 through 7, I would say you have to combine it with other scriptures to know how that works and how this passage fits in. And then you see the theological significance, the biblical significance. But here's a straightforward historical narrative by a doctor in the first century who is desirous in his writing his gospel, like the book of Acts, to communicate it to just one man, a noble man, uh, to let him know about the things that he says he believes. And these are the elements of our faith that Luke is recording for us that we, when we go back and read the Bible, we look at it and we say, yes, I believe that that is exactly how it happened. That's exactly how it came. Uh, Chris and I were driving around the neighborhood looking at some lights the other night. You come across some interesting manger scenes. Which have, which have absolutely no idea, no relevance to what actually is described for us in Luke chapter 2. Uh, some are animated. Some uh, use animals. But the actual nitty-gritty of what Luke talks about is missing. The lights allure you. They deceive you. You're enraptured by, wow, that's a wonderful decoration or whatever it is. 
But here Luke takes what is transcendent, he takes the Son of God who came into this world from above us and he makes it so simple and so plain because really ultimately that's what faith is all about. Faith latches on to the simple declaration of what God has done. We believe, we confess, we acknowledge the truth that God lays before us. So when you read this account, you notice that there is an emperor on the throne. His name is Caesar, Caesar Augustus. And that Caesar makes a decree. He writes out an order for the entire empire. And he sends it out. It's a decree to register or to tax or really to take a census to get an idea of who lives in his empire, which is made up, as you know, of a variety of nations, therefore a variety of peoples, and in this context, who is in Israel? He wants to know, he wants to have a record of all the people that dwell in Israel. And in order to achieve that, of course, you have to travel, and they did, to their family or their ancestral homes to uh, make this registration. So the first thing we discover is that Luke identifies for us who rules the Roman world. Who's in charge of the ancient world? Caesar Augustus. And so he immediately, when he says that name, gives us that name, he places what he writes in a historical context, doesn't he? Because Caesar lived long ago in the first century, and he reigned from a particular time to a particular time, 63 BC to 14 AD, quite an extended period of time. So it's an identifiable history. You can go back and you can study it. You can read books about it. You can learn about it. That Caesar, well known as it is, Augustus Caesar, reigned from this period, uh, 63 to 14 AD. Not only that, but what's significant about Augustus Caesar is that he is really Octavius, the grand nephew and the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And we all can identify with Caesar in history. So now we know when Luke I says Augustus Caesar that he is talking about a particular ruler, a particular man in the ancient world. A ruler who was very effective, by the way, brought a lot of prosperity to the Roman Empire, well known for the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome extending across his empire, mighty armies at his disposal, using them, bringing peace, bringing prosperity, ruling the ancient world. And that man, on one particular day, decides to register, to have his people under his rule registered. That's not an easy undertaking. That requires the word to go out, down the line, out into the empire, to bring about this decree that he says. In fact, you notice in verse 1 it says, All the world... All the world was to be registered. Now we know by that we don't mean every single person in the world. That's not what he means, Luke. He means the world of the Roman Empire. He means the world over which Augustus Caesar reigned and ruled. A decree by Caesar then to produce a record of where people live and where they belong to, of families in nations, of Joseph and Mary, in Israel. And in order to achieve a particular accurate record, you have to travel wherever you are to your ancestral home, to go back to where you come from. 
Now, of course, this registration would later on open the door, I think, and expose the Jews primarily, as well as, well as other nations, to further taxation or further interference by the Roman Empire. And of course, as you know, the Jews in particular did not like any Roman interference in their government or their governing of themselves in their religion. You'll notice also in verse 2, Luke says this is the first registration. And because of this registration, this is why Joseph must leave Galilee, where we're told he's from, he went up from Galilee in verse 4. He must leave Nazareth, where he lives, and he must go back to his family home, which is identified in the passage as, of course, in Judea being Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Because Luke tells us that both Joseph and Mary, Joseph primarily because he's the legal heir of the family back to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. He's descended from King David. Mary, as we know, is also descended from King David. They both travel together back, of course, to Judea, to Bethlehem. When Caesar made a decree, that's what they did. Historical fact, Caesar ruled and in that ruling of his decree or making of his decree, it affects the world, the Roman world. And in particular, Luke tells us it affects Joseph and Mary. That's the first fact. Second fact is notice he says that in verse 2, Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, you know, one of the things historians did back in the time, uh, if you read your Bible, for example, you'll notice even the Word of God does this. It establishes events within the reigns of certain kings, even sometimes pointing out certain days and months, and therefore you can work out the year when a king reigned, the particular day, the particular month, when whatever event is described. The Bible does that. Historians did that. We still do that if we're going to be accurate, if we're going to be careful. So notice, in the broad perspective, we are introduced to Augustus Caesar. Everybody reading Luke's Gospel knows immediately who Augustus Caesar is, but not everybody knows who Quirinius, the governor of Syria, is. Why Quirinius, the governor of Syria? Because he has effect or uh, importance over even Judea, but it particularly establishes something about this man. Now the problem with Quirinius is establishing when Quirinius was governor of Syria is a little difficult. And it's a little difficult because we know very definitely from history that Quirinius was governor from 6 AD to 9 AD in Syria. But that date, those dates, put him at least 10 years after the death of Herod, who was alive when Jesus was born. So that the, the Quirinius's governorship that we know about definitely is about 10 years after Jesus was born. So how do we, how do we reconcile that Quirinius is governor of Syria if we certainly know that the governorship that we know about is 10 years after the actual governorship that we read about. So verse 2 cannot be referring to 6 AD to 9 AD. Cannot be referring to that. Now there are archaeological discoveries that have been made that point to a very definite Roman ruler who governed over Syria and Phoenicia, which is to the north, uh, during the reign or the rule of Augustus. And the fragments 
that have been discovered point out or list some of this Roman governor's uh, accomplishments and things that he did. And those accomplishments seem to point to this man, Quirinius, who was governor of Syria. So now, if that's true, we do know that Quirinius actually governed twice in Syria or over Syria. So Caesar's census or Caesar's decree to tax the world apparently went out sometime around 8 BC and of course 8 BC brings us into a little difficulties with when Jesus was born because usually the birth of Jesus is somewhere around 4 BC or thereabouts. Well how do you explain if the decree goes out which we know about historically in 8 BC with what happened here? Well, the obvious answer is it simply takes time for decrees to eventually work themselves out into the vast regions of the Roman Empire and to be put into uh, effect. So I can allow, I certainly see, two to four years perhaps even to get that word out ultimately to the far reaches of the Roman Empire, which therefore accommodates quite comfortably uh, the birth, the birth date, I should say, of the Lord Jesus Christ as we recognize it from history. Do not be troubled by these anomalies for the simple reason that Luke is a careful historian. He's not a willy-nilly kind of historian. No, he's particular. He's very precise. He's very clear. In fact, that's one of the things you discover about Dr. Luke is that his record is careful and he has considered the history of it. In fact, he goes to great lengths to examine the history that lies behind Jesus' birth and Jesus' life and his death, burial, and resurrection and points out quite phenomenally all the medical little uh, issues that you read about in Luke's Gospel, which he explains, whereas Matthew or Mark or John do not say anything about it. So he's a good historian. He's careful. He's precise. And he lists, therefore, not the second governorship of Quirinius, but he lists the first governorship of Quirinius. And I have no doubt that the early readers in the first century church knew exactly who was governing Syria and they would have said Luke is right it was Quirinius at that time that's the second fact Caesar Quirinius the third fact verse 3 notice and all went to be registered each to his own town so every Jew must go up to his ancestral family home and that's why in verse 4 and 5 you discover that both Joseph and Mary who are related to King David must travel to Bethlehem which is known to us also as the city of David. So the text is quite precise. Joseph and Mary descended from David must return to their family home to enter in their details for registration. So Luke says that Joseph, end of verse 4, was of the house and lineage of David. Now, if, if you've read Luke chapter 1, and if you read Matthew chapter 1, you discover the genealogies, that, the background, that talk about the connection to David, to King David, both Joseph's line and Mary's line in Luke chapter 3. So they have to go to Bethlehem to do what Caesar says. The fourth fact that Luke includes is Mary's betrothal and Mary's pregnancy. Now we know about that 
from Luke chapter 1, right? And we know about that from Matthew chapter 1. So Mary is already conceived, is pregnant, and quite a long way further, a long way down in her pregnancy. I call them facts because Luke has already told us about them in the first chapter in his account. And so now you discover that this husband-wife team, Joseph and Mary, they must travel, make the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, make the journey from Galilee to Judea. Notice all the use of names, right? Galilee, Judea, Nazareth, Bethlehem. Certainly not an easy journey to take. You have two options. Two options to get from Galilee down to Bethlehem near Jerusalem. How do you do it? Well, you could take the shortest cut, the shortest route, the quickest way, you go due south. But that means you go through mountainous territory and you go through the land of the Samaritans who are hostile. So it's dangerous. The other route is to go uh, east towards the Jordan River and then go south down the Jordan River Valley and then cut back over the Jordan and come out uh, near Jerusalem, near Bethlehem. That's by far the safest route, but it is longer. It is not also an easy route. It has its own difficulties as well. Most of the Jews traveled that route to avoid encounters with the Samaritans. We read often of Jesus encountering the Samaritans. He must needs go through Samaria to meet the woman at the well, right? He came through the Samaritan villages and uh, wanted to spend time with them, but because his face was set like a, a flint to go to Jerusalem, uh, they didn't want anything to do with Jesus. James and John wanted to call fire down from heaven upon these Samaritans. So it's not easy to travel from Galilee down south to Bethlehem, but Joseph and Mary, they must and they have to make this journey in order to do what Caesar says uh, to be registered. How can it be an easy journey? Mary is pregnant. And obviously, from the account Luke gives, heavily pregnant. And therefore, uh, perhaps much walking was done by Joseph. And so perhaps it might have taken them a week or a little longer to make the trip, the journey. Uh, and I assume that they probably traveled with others uh, because of the dangers along the way. Uh, will you notice, however, in the text that the text says that uh, in verse five to be registered with Mary his betrothed now that conveys the idea that they're still engaged the Greek text says having been betrothed having been betrothed so and we also know of course from Matthew's gospel the first chapter verse 24 that after Gabriel had spoken to Joseph alleviated his concerns about the pregnancy of Mary that the Bible says he took her to be his own wife what does that mean he took her into his home and completed the Jewish marriage uh, betrothal period completed the marriage they are now totally fully husband and wife but the Bible is clear to say he knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son now you know we often generally 
look at the shame, as I've mentioned with the other passages in previous Lord's Days, we look at the shame of Mary. But just think for a moment, here is this man who takes this woman to be his wife, who marries her now, she is pregnant, and certainly there was the idea that this was through immorality. But Joseph himself takes shame even to himself by marrying Mary, who is herself pregnant. This is, this is part of the plan. Both Joseph and Mary, as we know, have accepted Gabriel's explanation of the pregnancy. It is conception by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, any shame to be encountered, they are completely willing to bear and to put up with. Truly, this is a picture of humiliation. One of the things we discover about the Lord Jesus Christ is that there are two states two states that uh, are concerned with Jesus, his humiliation and his exaltation. We know about his offices, his prophet, his priest, and his king. But his state of humiliation is of such an extent that even the humiliation that Jesus has with himself coming into the world uh, also extends by shame to Joseph and to Mary. And I have no doubt through the upbringing of Jesus Mary and Joseph might have encountered some of those, uh, those shameful recollections. So Luke progresses. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, And while they were there, they're in Bethlehem now, come to register, the time came for her to give birth. Verse 6, and so she does. Verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger or a feeding trough. And she did that, the Bible tells us, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, I don't know all the ins and outs of what it meant to try and get some hotel accommodation or a motel accommodation, but certainly Joseph and Mary have gone to a particular place. The time is urgent. The child is coming. Mary is... Uh, heavily pregnant and seems to be on the verge of delivery. We need a room. I have no room. And who knows who directed them to the place where the animals are kept and where the feeding trough, the manger exists, but does not matter. There they find themselves in this place of uncleanness. No room in the lodging place, no room in the inn. And so they have searched, come up empty, and now we find them in this place where the animals lived, were housed, and were fed. Not a very glorious account of a king being born into the world. I mean, princes and princesses are born, I suppose, every day around the world. They are born in splendor, born in luxury, having every need attended to them, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. He comes to this place. Finds, uh, uh, they find this uh, animal shed. Well, that's Luke's account, isn't it? One thing we have discovered is it's factual because he includes historical facts. And he weaves in those historical facts about, about rulers and about places. He weaves in the actual reality of Joseph and Mary's situation of getting from Galilee to Bethlehem and then the birth of and the delivery of Jesus into the world. Now you know chapter 2 makes sense, doesn't it? 
Only because of chapter 1. Only because of what we know. Otherwise we would, might say, well, this is an account of some descendants of David who have made a journey and have struggled to find accommodation because it's busy. Everybody's coming to be registered, perhaps, who lives in Bethlehem. And therefore, she had to give birth in this animal shed. That is what has happened. That's one account. But we know better because of chapter 1. There has been preparation undertaken by God. This whole thing is from God. So chapter 1 speaks so eloquently of the activity of God. I mean, think, for instance, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, her conception, in their old age, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Think of Joseph and Mary and Mary's pregnancy, which Luke tells us in chapter 1, all coming from Gabriel's mouth, the delivering the message from God to Zechariah and then to Mary about John the Baptist and about Jesus who was to be born. So when I look at verses 1 through 7, it's not just another story, is it? I mean, what story does the world, what spin does the world put on Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7? Oh, it's a brilliant caricature. It's a wonderful picture that is painted. But there's nothing, there's nothing glorious about being born in a cattle shed. There's nothing beautiful about that. In fact, it's just the mundane, basic elements that we are to conjure up in our minds when we read the text. But we know because of Luke's one, Luke 1, and we know because of the Old Testament Scriptures that this is the plan and the purpose of God. So this is not just another story. But this is the unfolding and the outworking of God's Word from ages past. Not just a general unfolding or a generalization, but specific and exact and precise and particular as we know. So God's promises give us the exact things that God will bring about, the fulfillment of God. And God's accomplishment, you will notice here, in this scripture of his word, is in very human terms, right? You can hardly say that verses 1 through 7 is, a, is from a theological standpoint. No, it's from a very human standpoint. It includes a Roman emperor and a Syrian governor, and it includes these places and names, and so on. What we do discover is that a Roman emperor, long ago, decided decided himself to tax the world, to register the world. I want to know how many people I have, and I want to know how many people are in Israel, so go and be registered. He decides that. But you know, dear congregation, it's not Caesar's hand that guides and rules Luke chapter 2, is it? It's the hand of God. It's the purposes of God. So what happens in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, is God's purpose according to God's promises. Here is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We read this morning, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though the smallest amongst the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be ruler of my people, whose goings forth have been from everlasting, and shall be unto everlasting. And he... 
That ruler is your peace. So, God's word has, has made a decree, if you like, a prophecy. And this, verses 1 through 7, is the fulfillment of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, because they must go to Bethlehem. They go to Bethlehem because Caesar said. Ah, but ultimately they go to Bethlehem because God said, not because Caesar said. So it's God who's doing this and working here. And what's so great about Bethlehem? No, the smallest of places, the most insignificant of places. Out of insignificance comes the most significant thing in all of human history, our Lord Jesus Christ, a ruler whose existence has been from of old, from ages past unto ages in the future that is to come. You remember how Herod the Great, when he was confronted by the wise men's desire, where is, where is he that is born king of the Jews? How he went to the chief priests and the scribes and he says, now tell me, where is the Christ to be born? And what was the answer that they gave? They gave Micah chapter 5 verse 2. In Bethlehem. That's where the Christ is to be born. So, so he sends all of his soldiers to Bethlehem and kill all the male children. Because Herod had no desire to be usurped on his throne. But to rule. And any competition was to be eliminated. But when he gets the place, where does he get the place from? He gets the place from the Old Testament Scriptures. God's plan. So Bethlehem is God's purpose. Bethlehem is God's place. Bethlehem is God's plan. And Bethlehem is David's city, verse 4, right? To the city of David. So it's right then that Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem because that's where Jesus is to be born, who is the king of the Jews. It's right that David's descendants should be born where David himself was born. But what I want you to notice, dear congregation, in all of this is just simply this, that God's plan includes godless nations and godless rulers. Now just put that into your mind. God's plan includes godless nations and godless rulers. It's Caesar, who is called Augustus. Self-exalted one. Magnificent. Majestic one. Self-titled. He took that to himself. Just to let the Roman Empire know, I'm your supreme Lord. There's an aspect of deity attached to Augustus, the August one, or the August, Augustus. Notice it's according to God's timetable, precisely when Quirinius, an obscure governor in Syria, is mentioned by Luke. You know, one of the great themes of the Old Testament is that God rules over every nation on the world, in the world. God rules over all of them. For instance, He raises up kings and He tears them down, doesn't He? Nebuchadnezzar can be raised to the heights of splendor and glory in Babylon and even can stand there and look out and say, isn't this Babylon that I have made? And God strikes him. God brings him down like an animal in a field chained to a tree. Psalm 47, 8 says that God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. 
Isaiah 40 verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket, like the dust on the seashore. Psalm 89:27 says that Christ is the highest of the kings of the earth. Psalm 102 verse 15, Nations fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will bring him glory. There's no question. In the Old Testament scriptures, God is sovereign over nations, over the pagan world. So the history of Augustus Caesar, the history of Quirinius, governor of Syria, the history of Vladimir Putin, or the history of Xi Jinping, take anyone you like. Name them throughout history. Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, Cyrus the Great. Name them. You shall discover that they are completely in the hands of God. God is sovereign over all of history. Why? Because he's God. God rules. God reigns. And he reigns in history. And he reigns through history. And he reigns over history. Now, you know, one of the great things about that is that I'm in history. And you're in history. So if God is ruling over all things like that, He rules over the minutest details of that history, orchestrating the fabric of it all so that it comes to pass to bring to account God's purpose and God's will, which includes you and includes me this morning. So that God, down to the minutest details, does it by His sovereign power and according to His sovereign will. And let's not forget all about the history of Joseph. And Mary that the Bible has given us. It's them, those two, that God chose, uh, has chosen. And he brings them to Bethlehem. Not the decree of Caesar. Though that from a human standpoint is what brings them. But it's God working it out, isn't it? Little did either of them, Joseph or Mary, living their lives in Nazareth, ever really, uh, no, not, they never thought that what happened in Luke chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1 would be their lot and these things would come upon them. Little did they imagine this turn in their lives. Oh dear congregation, we tend to see ourselves because we're nothing and insignificant in the, in the cog of history's wheel as being therefore of no account. But that is not how God sees you. Because you exist because of God. You are alive because of God. You do what you do because of God. Your work, your place of abode, whatever it is, it is God who establishes all of these elements. So my history and your history, our history, is directed by God. Sarasota's history is directed by God. Everything is in the hands of God. What we tend to do is focus on the bad things, the evil things, the negative things. And somehow God is, well, we need to, we need to pray God, that God might do something. No, God is doing something. God is doing something because He's God. He's holding all things together. He's making His will, His purpose to be accomplished. You know the interesting thing about Gabriel? is he says absolutely nothing in his message to Joseph or to Mary about Bethlehem. So God says nothing to them about this place, Bethlehem. 
So, was it God's plan that they go to Bethlehem? God has said nothing to Joseph or Mary about it. So how does it come about that they go because of Caesar? They don't go because of Caesar. They go because of God. Because God had already said something about it in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. So God can use a pagan, self-exalting ruler in the world to simply accomplish his purpose for his people. I think that's an encouragement to me, an encouragement to you. Because we look around us and we look at the world and everything is falling to pieces. But is God falling to pieces? Of course not. God's in total control of these wor- this world's nations and their rulers and their kings and their authorities. And he, God, is bringing about his purpose. And you and I are in the purpose of God. That's an encouragement to me, I think. I think this Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 is a word from God to you this morning. Here is something for you to believe. Here is something to strengthen your faith so that in faith you will go forward believing in God that God has a hold of my life and a purpose for my life. Joseph and Mary are ordinary people. Insignificant, of no account, no, no value in, in uh, Israel's value system. They're the bottom rung socially. And yet, look what God has brought about. Joseph and Mary, they do God's will, don't they? Because they believe the message that Gabriel, or that God has given through Gabriel. They don't know all the ins and outs. They don't know the ups and downs. They don't know the trials, the tribulations. They don't know the difficulties or sorrows of life. And yet they don't know these things. All those little details will be worked out. But it's because of God. It's because of God. God weaves, doesn't he? Knits together the fabric of your life and my life and has done so even as we gather this morning. And don't forget, there was no room. No room in that little inn for them. Who orchestrated that? How did that come about? God. Because God's behind all of these things. So God accomplishes his, his eternal purpose of sending His Son into the world. That's what Paul wrote to Timothy, right? That God sent His Son into the world to be the Savior of sinners. So God accomplishes His purpose. Where does He accomplish it? He accomplishes it in the insignificant, the out of the way, the dirty, the unclean place, an animal trough, the backside of an inn, perhaps. There's the Lord of glory, born in a cattle shed, so that no room in the inn leads to a manger, because of God, that God has sent His Son. To this place. God has sent his son to that manger, to that animal shed, to that place, to cause has caused Caesar to bring about a decree that has caused Joseph and Mary in the governorship of Quirinius to go to their ancestral home. It's God. It's God. You know, we should not despise the day of small things. We should not do that. Daily life is mundane. But in your daily, day-to-day life, God urges you to trust Him, to believe, 
to yield your life to him he will accomplish great things now you know today it's all about I think in the church of Jesus about you accomplishing great things it's even it's even spoken of in the in the way that God will do great things through you but so much so that you are the significant part of that no it's God who must get the glory not man not me not you but God so I find Luke 2 verses 1 through 7 focuses my attention on God and only on God so these verses as you know must be seen in the light of Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 when the fullness of the time had come God sent forth his son to be born of a woman to be born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so why did God send his son to redeem when did he send his son when the time was absolutely right God God let me ask you what's the next great event from heaven is it not the appearance of our king the Lord Jesus Christ another coming now do you think that God is not preparing the nations and his people for that great day when uh, his son shall come again into this world I know why Jesus came you know why Jesus came he came to redeem he came to buy his people out of bondage to save them he came to lay down his life as the price for your salvation for my salvation I just have one question can this Jesus this firstborn son that Luke just describes like that can he actually do those things can he actually redeem me this one <clears throat> I mean he's insignificant really he's in obscurity who knows about him can he do it can he accomplish this now you know imagine you're in your house in the first century you wake up one morning and you open your door and you go down the path and there's the Jerusalem daily newspaper or if you're in Bethlehem the weekly gazette right and you pick up your copy and you open it up and you open it up to the jobs section help wanted and you begin to peruse and go through the help wanted section and then you come across this little advert that says help wanted redeemer of the world redeemer of the world first and here are the stipulations right three requirements for the position first the applicant must be God no others need apply well that excludes or brings it down narrows the search down to three persons right first requirement must be God second requirement he must have become a man well that excludes two of the three and leaves one and the third requirement is that the applicant must have on the job experience on the job experience God did not send his son into the world at the age of 33 so that when he appeared they arrest him and put him on the cross and he rises from the dead on the third day that's not how God did it <clears throat> God sent his son as a helpless infant in muck 
in an animal feeding trough to save sinners. That's how God did it. Which plan is better? If it was my plan, I would have hired out the, 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 the Ritz Hotel. I would have kicked everybody out and said, no, I, this is for the king. He's coming. But not God. Not God, right? Why did, why did God send Jesus to Bethlehem to that place? So that Jesus could experience daily human life. Whether it's there or back in Nazareth, that in his life he would experience all of the trials and all of the tribulations and all of the temptations that you and I would experience and that he would do it triumphantly. He would do it triumphantly. You know, one of the interesting things in the epistle to the Hebrews is that on three occasions, the writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus was made perfect. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean, made perfect? I thought he was perfect. What do you mean, he was made perfect? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 28. He was made perfect. What does that mean? It says that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. It says that Jesus learned obedience by the things that he what? Suffered. That's how Jesus was made perfect. So that over the course of his human life, in his humanity, he had to learn to submit to the Father through suffering. That's a necessary obedience that Jesus gave. That's to be under the law and to do what it says. That's what Jesus did. And now, Hebrews 5.9, being made perfect, he has become the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. It was necessary for Jesus to come in the flesh, to suffer and to die, to perfect for you, to secure for you your salvation. Because all that is required in obedience, you cannot provide. He did. Because he came sinless. And yet, he exposes himself in his humanity, which he's taken to himself in this place, in the womb of Mary, delivered at Bethlehem. He exposes himself to all of the trials of humanity. Don't you see that in the manger even? There it is. There it is in the manger. So that his sinless life, then his death, his burial, his resurrection from the dead, they enable him to save you and to save me, to save sinners. It was necessary for Jesus to die, to suffer. He has no need, right, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, because he has none, nor for, uh, and then to offer himself for the sins of the people. He only comes to offer himself for those for whom he died, to make atonement for them. This little insignificant place with its dirty manger is to bring about my salvation. To bring about yours. That's Advent. That's Christmas, right? That's the true meaning. Mary's firstborn son. Savior of the world. That leaves me in closing two things. Number one, you should be humbled by that. I should be humbled by that. should be broken by that. 
The humiliation of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus in his daily life was for me. That ought to do something to me, to my life. Not to be arrogant or be like a Caesar or like a governor, but to be simply depending upon Christ, upon God. Like Joseph, like Mary, who believed the word. That's the second thing, by the way. You should believe and you should confess. You should be humble and then you should believe and you should confess that this Jesus, this firstborn son of Mary, he's the one who came for me. I don't mean you should have a sentimental faith. There's too much of that around. That's not faith. But you should have a saving faith. A faith that is a gift from God. That you only get from God. That you can only go to God and ask Him to save you. And He opens your heart by His power. He regenerates. He cuts your heart open. He humbles you. And then on your humiliation, you confess and believe this good news. That's what you have to do. A sentimental faith is what the world offers about Jesus at Christmas. It's even what the church offers. But it's not what we want to say is faith. No, we want to believe and confess that Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Now, if there was just one sinner and it was me, Jesus would have stooped from heaven to bring about my salvation. And if it was just you, he would have done the same. He's the only one who can save, by the way. Because this is who he is. Nobody else can save. So God has worked out, it seems to me, perfectly, every necessary detail to bring about your salvation. To bring about my salvation. And he did it through his son. All the details he orchestrated for his son to come into the world. That's why Joseph and Mary traveled to this place, Bethlehem. That's why Caesar made a decree that the world should be registered. That's why all of these took place. So that the insignificant might become the most significant thing. And that's what Jesus has done. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, when we look at your working in human history, it is the raveling together of the coil and the fabric of seemingly a trillion zillion events. All made to come together according to your will. How can we grasp such a thing, Father? And yet we see it so plainly stated for us here in Luke chapter 2, that you have accomplished this. And as we read our Bibles, our Old Testaments, our New Testaments, we discover that it's true, that you are sovereign, and that this is your purpose and your plan, and that our Lord Jesus Christ is who he is, He's the Son of God who took to Himself humanity. The Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. And He was obedient to Your holy will and Your holy law. He suffered in His life so that He might bear our sins in His own body on the tree. Thank You for Your purpose, Father. Thank You for Your plan in sending Your Son into this world to save us. 
We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you came for us, that you humbled yourself and took the form of a servant and were found in fashion as a man, and you became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross for us. So we want to say this morning, that's what I believe. That's what I confess is for me. So thank you for your word and do a great work in us, we pray. Thank you for your beloved son. And thank you that the Holy Spirit will take the word of God and impress it upon our hearts and minds. Change our lives, we pray. Make them like your beloved sons. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.